picking up in verse 7. Then after he said to, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking the rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that as you have been faithful to meet with us, uh, that you have received our prayers, our praise, as you have instructed us thus far from your word. We pray now as we come to the preaching of the word, that you would magnify your name. Though men may look on and deem it foolish, we pray, Lord, that you would bless and honor that which you have appointed. The power of your spirit would be at work in the proclamation as well as the hearing, that the word would find good soil in our hearts and bear fruit for your glory there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are various passages in Scripture that uh, people who are unchurched, people who have never been in the church, uh, have heard. They don't even realize that uh, what they have heard or known uh, is from God's inspired word, perhaps from a popular song. Solomon, the wisest man, mere man that ever lived, is the author of such words in Ecclesiastes 3 that tie into our text this morning. Solomon wrote there, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Solomon understood that everything that happens is ordered by God. He appoints a day of our birth and the very time of our death. God has also made every man, woman, boy, and girl know within their very being that there is something after our physical death. Because we're made in God's image, we have a sense of eternity, that uh, death is not the end of it, that there's something more. But it is true that there are those who suppress this knowledge in sinfulness. A time to be born, a time to die. Paul writes that since this is true, we must be wise and not live like fools who say there is no God. He goes on to say we are to redeem the time. Because the days are evil. From the time of our birth to the time of our death, we are to redeem that time. Use that time wisely to use it to the glory of God. Chapter 11 in John is a chapter about death. One of the central things, uh, themes is Lazarus' death. We've just heard Lazarus is dead. There's echoes all the way back to the garden. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why did Lazarus die? Because Adam ate. 
Why do we die? Why do we see our family members die? Because Adam did rebel and against God, and he sinned. And we sinned in him and fell with him. In that first transgression, death is upon man. Lazarus died because of sin. But it does not end there. We know, if we're familiar with this chapter, that Jesus goes. And when Jesus shows up, everything changes. John did not record this event just so that we would be amazed at the power of Jesus to raise the dead. Indeed, that is true. And indeed, we should be amazed. And if we are not, if we do not rise up and give God the glory, there is something seriously wrong within us. But it's not the only thing that it's about. This death and the resurrection of Lazarus will settle the resolve of the religious leaders. We will see as we move on after the resurrection that the religious leaders, they've had it. They've had all they can take. They even go so far as to considering killing Lazarus, as we shall see. But they are determined that Jesus must die. So even as we see the death of Lazarus, we're looking further down. It's pointing to a death that is yet to come, even the death of Christ. They cannot, they will not tolerate him doing any more mighty miracles. But we know that this mighty miracle in Bethany that day was but a small, notice that, it was a mighty miracle, but it was a small foreshadowing of the greater miracle that would come when Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, took it up again. When he arose again from the grave, even as he said he would. And of course, let us understand that this points to the reality for us, if we are in Christ, we too, though we die, shall be raised. That is our blessed hope. We're going to use three main headings. They're very simple. Drawing from Ecclesiastes, a time to die, a time to live, and then we'll consider the time of Christ. Mark Johnson is a contemporary. He uh, wrote a little uh, booklet. It's a a simple commentary, more of a study guide, the Banner Truth series, the Let's Study series. I really commend that series to you. It's a very approachable way to consider the the books of the Bible that they've done it on. He wrote one on John's Gospel. And in it, he comments concerning this chapter, Death lurks like an ominous shadow above all that is said and done in the first part of this chapter. Though we are not brought face to face with it, Around a deathbed, yet from the very outset, death is in the air. It is the evident fear gripping the hearts of the two sisters. Their urgent message sent to Jesus is not merely fired by the thought that their brother was ill and they wanted him healed, healed, but that he was so ill that they were afraid he would die. It is the sense of utter despair known both by the dying and by those they love, death is a powerful and ominous adversary. We know that. Death is a powerful and ominous adversary. It is the one thing that men fear the most, and yet it is the one thing that most people, in every way they can, push it to the side, bury it under busyness, hide it under their uh, entertainments and attractions, because death is ominous, and it comes for us all. That is the reality. And therefore, we should care about what's going on here. Now, let us understand Jesus was no stranger to death. As, as a boy, he would have had family members that would have died. We, we understand that his uh, earthly father, that is Mary's husband, who he grew up in his household, would have died. Joseph is gone. There would have been other relatives, as well as people from his home village of Nazareth, that he would have known of their deaths. A small community, those things would not have been missed even as we find it in small communities today. Death 
was everywhere. A constant reminder of Adam's sin. Does that not resonate with you this morning? We've just heard of the remnants of uh, a storm which came ashore as a hurricane and wreaked havoc all the way down along the ghosts of the Gulf states, on, all the way onto the great cities of the Northeast. Death! Death of people dying far, far away from the hurricane forces and yet dying because of great flooding. Death is all around us, whether it's through some uh, disaster, act of God, as people used to refer to it, indeed as it is, as we've been reminded from Psalm 29. Many die. Every day there are those that are dying. And it's the consequence of the curse for Adam's sin. If we're going to understand then how to live, then we must know that there is a time of our own death. And we must make provision for that day. Our death is approaching. We do not know when or where. Just the last week I heard of a young man in his late 30s suddenly died a, a massive heart attack, an unexpected event. You hear of me. You know of what I'm speaking. We anticipate living on in our 70s, 80s today. They say you know, life expectancy even for men and women is on into the 80s. But death comes for us all. Many people in our day, as well as throughout history, try to live as if death were not real. But a visit to a church graveyard or to a community cemetery will remind you very quickly, it will reinforce with a certainty the absolute reality of death. There are the dates, born and died on every tombstone. Tens of millions across, hundreds of millions across this land. However, when we think about John 11, we are not gripped with fear or despair. There's this death. Mary and Martha are grieving. Jesus, we will see, himself weeps. But this passage is filled with hope. Isn't that interesting? When you think about death, do you not often think of John 11? I know I do. But what? We don't think about Lazarus died. We move quickly on that Lazarus died, but Jesus came and he raised him from the dead. It is a chapter about death, but it is a chapter about hope. And thus, we want to consider that reality. This is the text that Christians turn to when a fellow believer dies. This passage is filled with hope for all those who are united to Christ by faith. It is here that we find another one of the great I am statements. We've had several of those thus far. It is here we find that one where Jesus declares, I am the resurrection of the life in life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet he shall live. Sounds like a paradox, and indeed it is. Christ is the one who accomplishes those realities. This is why Jesus then spoke as he did in, in verse 11. These things he said to them after that he had, um, after that he had said to them, "Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up." The word of God frequently refers to the death of those who um, are saved by faith, looking to Christ as sleep. Even in the Old Testament, the testimony is of so and so he died and he rested. With his fathers. I think it's particularly in the chronologies of Kings and Chronicles, unlike those, say, in Genesis 10, so and so begat so and so, and he died, and he died, and he died. In those chronologies, we're, we're told that, and he rested with his fathers. So you have this idea already of death not being final and absolute, but indeed asleep for those who have hope in Christ. Luke records 
in Acts that when the religious leaders stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, the scripture says Stephen fell asleep. It's quite remarkable language. Paul's great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of those who sleep in Jesus. And he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. When Jesus comes again, we shall all be changed. Some will be alive. Some will be in their graves. As Paul was saying, they will be asleep. And Christ will bring them forth. But we all shall be changed in the twinkling of the eye. Transformed. Incorruption, or corruption, corruption put off, incorruption put on, receiving new bodies. So what's going on here? Why this language? To make a distinction about the spiritual state of men. In Adam, we all died. We're spiritually dead. When, when a child's heart, when a child is conceived in the womb, as David says in Psalm 139, or I'm sorry, Psalm 51, he says it was conceived in sin. We're sinners from conception. And therefore, our inner man, our spirit, is dead. It is not Godward. It is contrary to God. It is in rebellion against God. And thus, the scripture language is, we're dead. We're spiritually dead. And the scripture goes on to make it clear that when we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a resurrection. We are raised up in newness of life. The heart of stone is taken out. In the language of Ezekiel 36, we're given a, a, a heart of flesh. We're made alive unto God in salvation. Once we were contrary to him, we were in rebellion against him. We were dead in our sins. God makes us alive unto him. It's a marvelous transformation. It is the supernatural act of God that will happen today. You've heard me say that. People are looking for the miraculous. Every time a sinner repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, God has acted contrary to nature. He has supernaturally intervened and done a mighty work that would never have happened any other way. No man can change his heart. Even as we sang, we can't, a, a leper, spotted with leprosy, cannot change his spots. He cannot make them go away. It is God who has done that in Christ who has paid it all for us. This is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, you must be born again. Nicodemus, a religious leader, a very religious man, a seemingly a devout religious man, and yet he was dead. And Jesus was saying, you must be born again. You need to be a partaker of that first resurrection that comes in Christ. In Revelation, we find, another book written by John, that those who are partakers of this first resurrection, that is, their dead heart, their dead soul, the inner man that is dead and contrary to God, who has been redeemed by Christ, is a partaker of the first resurrection, and John records, as the Spirit gives him understanding, has no part in the second death. What is the second death? It is that final death of all. When after the judgment seat of Christ, those who are not in Christ, there will be that great host who have rejected Christ, who remained in rebellion in their sin, and they will be cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire that burns forever, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is the second death. And the glorious promise is those who are partakers of the first resurrection, that is, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, I have no part in the second death. Well, what's the first death? That's the death that came from Adam. What a marvelous truth. These are the themes of Scripture brought together, and they are here in the text before us uh, because it's in the broader context of Scripture. The Spirit of those 
who Christ redeems is at their death made perfectly blessed for the full enjoyment of God forever. So when we come to that point of death, what is death? How would you describe death? Well, we say, well, it's when the life leaves. Well, it's when the spirit, the person, the, 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 we interact with one another. We see a body, but there's somebody that dwells in that body. They're one. Death is when that inner man leaves the body and just the flesh is left. Just the pod, just the carcass. And the scripture teaches us that our bodies matter. We will need them again. Uh, the body of the believer remains united to Christ in the grave waiting the resurrection. But what does Paul teach? That moment of our death, we're absent from the body. We who live in the body, uh, when you refer to it, the soul, the life, is gone. He's checked out. He's left as being a resident there. That inner man has gone to be with God, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And this is what Paul, uh, what Jesus is talking about when he says... Lazarus sleeps. Lazarus was a man of faith. He was one who was looking to Christ for salvation. He did not have the fullness of the knowledge that we have after the cross, but nonetheless, his hope was in the promise of God concerning the anointed one, even Jesus Christ. And so, when Lazarus died, his body was wrapped and laid in a grave, but his spirit was made perfectly blessed for the full enjoying of God. No more sinning. Now, there's a lot of questions that come up with this. And we're, we may get into that during sermon discussion. We'll be resuming that this morning, and I guarantee you there's a lot we can talk about here. What about Lazarus? When he came back, was he able to continue to sin, or was he not able to sin? What happened to him where he was gone? What did he see? What was it like? You know what? Scripture's silent. Why? God said, we don't need to know. Because if we needed to know, he would have recorded it. So maybe I've already answered some of your questions there, even though questions linger. But he would have been with the Lord, absent from the body. And there his body was laid away by the family, awaiting the resurrection. But for him, there was a resurrection before that great resurrection that was to come. Lazarus is unique. Lazarus is most remarkable. This is a remarkable passage that's before us. This takes place, this resurrection, when Jesus comes again to that end. Let's just turn to Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just to be reminded of the glorious realities of what happens when Jesus comes again. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Paul's writing to a church. They're confused about these things. There's been a lot of controversy. and People have been dying and they're wondering what's happened to them. Where, where's the return of Christ? What's happened to our friends, our beloved in the Lord? Well, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. There's the same language. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They sleep. They're dead in Christ, but they're going to rise. The idea of wakening up. Thus we have the language here again of sleep. It goes on, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Isn't that a marvelous passage? We're talking about death. We're thinking about death. This passage about death. We're mindful. 
put to death in our own lives and around us. But for those who are Christ Jesus, there's comfort in this reality that when Jesus comes again, we shall be raised up. He will come with the spirits of the righteous, and they will be reunited to their bodies and caught up into heaven, even as they are transformed. And those who are alive at the time of Christ's coming, they will be transformed. They shall forever be with the Lord. So let's consider what we're seeing here. To sleep in Jesus is not a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. To think about checking out from this body, going to be with the Lord in our spirit, is a positive thing. Some of you have heard me say that. If you have long walked with the Lord, some of you decades, myself decades and decades, some 50 years or so, you've struggled with sin, your desire to be holy, you're often... uh, angry even at your own self for how easy it is to sin and you war against the flesh as Paul writes in Romans 7 when we die that battle is forever over that battle will forever be at an end next time you are in your body it will be changed it will not sin it will not have a desire to sin. It will have no power to sin. It will be made gloriously new. That's when the scripture says, when we see him, that is Jesus, we shall be like him. No more sin. Hallelujah. We can all be Baptists and say amen about that. I mean, they're not the only ones that have a corner on that market. That is glorious truth. No more battle with sin. What a wonderful thing. It's not a negative thing for the believer to die. And furthermore, again, back to Paul's words, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We'll see him with, with a, a high eye unhindered by sin. We will not see him with faith. We will see him and behold him as he is. How glorious will be that. It is beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. To sleep in Jesus is not a negative thing. And thus the psalmist, Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. So we know that sleep for the body is beneficial. The disciples knew that. In verse 12, Jesus has told them that our friend Lazarus sleeps. And I go that I may wake him up. The disciples said, verse 12, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. It is a wonderful reality of sleep. It's very restorative. Even when we're healthy, we need a good night's sleep, right? And if you don't get good rest, you become unhealthy. And if you've been sick, one of the great benefits and blessings is to sleep. And that's what the disciples are thinking about. The idea of a resurrection, that Lazarus is dead, is it's not in their mind. They haven't even considered it. It's far away from them. But Jesus knows what the situation is. The sleep of death is necessary for the Christian. It is the way with the, that we leave this world of sin and woe and enter into the presence of our beloved Savior. He has gone to prepare a place for us. But the sleep of here on earth is also beneficial, for we benefit in the body because God has made us that way. There are marvelous scientific documented things that happen when we sleep. But again, thinking about us being asleep in Jesus, I want to quote from John Owen, one of the preeminent Puritans who wrote, When at death the soul departs from the body, it is immediately freed from all weakness, disability, darkness, doubts, fears. The image of the first Adam will then be abolished. All physical weakness and infirmities will be gone forever. It is by virtue of the death of Christ alone that the souls of believers are freed from death, freed by death from the presence of sin and all the effects 
that sin has wrought in the bodies. And being freed, their souls flourish and expand to the fullness extent. Our souls will realize the fullness of all that we can ever have and be in Christ Jesus at our death. So we wait for the resurrection. This is the condition of Lazarus. He's asleep. He's awaiting the resurrection. His soul is with the Lord. The word of God is very clear on these things. There's a question that people have at this point. They say, well, is is there such a thing as a soul sleep? I think the Roman Catholic Church teaches that. There are those down through the ages the church have taught it. There's no such a thing as soul sleep. Paul makes it completely clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's talking about the soul. We are with the Lord. There's nowhere in the scriptures that soul sleep is taught. And it's for these reasons that the Christian believer does not grieve as the world grieves. So I said, yes, this chapter is about death, but it's a chapter of hope. Because we know, if we've read it, we know what comes after the death. If we have that blessed hope in Christ, death is not final. We will be raised again when Jesus comes. Lazarus drew his last breath with that hope. Little did he know that four days later, he was going to be raised again. Oh, most remarkable and stunning of miracles. You've heard me refer to Lazarus often from this pulpit, and I no doubt will do it again because this is a vivid picture of what we are apart from Christ. A vivid picture of his body, dead, unable, in a tomb, corrupt, and yet the power of God unto salvation brought that body forth. Lazarus, let's not confuse the two. Lazarus is a redeemed man. He's fallen asleep in Jesus. But when it comes to his flesh, that's a picture of what we are apart from Christ. We're dead in our hearts, dead in our trespasses. But the Lord has the power of salvation to bring us forth renewed. And so because of all these things, Jesus says to his disciples that he's glad. Later on, verse 14 they're confused about the sleep. Verse 13, however, Jesus spoke to his, of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He knows that. They need to know that. And then what does he say, verse 15? I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Jesus was glad that he wasn't there and that Lazarus has died. You see how death of a saint is not a negative thing. It's not... A negative thing. He said, I'm glad for your sake I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now remember John's great theme, John 20, 31. These things were written, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what Jesus is dealing with with his followers, these disciples. He said, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? That you may believe. Believe what? That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing they may have life in his name. Jesus is going to Bethany to perform his greatest miracle. And if Jesus had been there, had he got up when the word came and went, it would seem that if we count things out, he would have been dead when he got there. If he would immediately gone back with the messenger, it would have been too late. Because the messengers come, if we know from distances, that was a day's travel. So there's one day. There's two days delays. Now we're up to three days. Jesus now says, let's go. It's going to take a day to get there. That's four days. When he arrives, what does he find out? Lazarus has been dead four days. 
If Jesus had been there, he could have, he could have healed him. Jesus could have spoke the word from where he was at along the Jordan and healed him. But Jesus didn't go on purpose. He was doing the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father that Lazarus would die, that Jesus would come when Lazarus was four days dead in order to do this mighty miracle, that his disciples would see it, that we would read of it. For this clearly demonstrates he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He is the one that the Father sent into the world. He is God incarnate, God come in the flesh. And that by believing this, that they would have life in his name, that we believing this would have life in his name. Well, let's make some applications before we go on to our second point. Have you made provisions for your own funeral? I mean that in two respects. I said, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But what about your funeral? You're a believer. Your hope is in God. You're resting in Christ. Have you thought about your funeral? I've even thought about this as your pastor, that this is something I should take up with you, a a home visit. Let's sit down and tell me what you like. We don't know. You you may die Wednesday of this week. And does someone know what you desire, how you want your service done? What do you want the emphasis to be? Are there songs you want sung, biblical texts that you want read? What kind of message do you want want preached? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you don't tell me anything, I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. I do that at unbelievers' funerals as well. But have you thought about your funeral. Have you made provision? Have you documented it? Have you written it down? Let me encourage you to do that. It's a responsible thing to do. And by doing so, it doesn't hasten the day, nor does it delay the day. Make provision for that day. Make sure that it's clear what you want. And indeed, may your theme be, let me just give you this, that it would give glory to God, even in your death, even in that time when we gather, that God would be given the glory through a testimony, the life you live, the hope that you have, and indeed that others might hear of Christ too. But what about the person who's not in Christ? Maybe you don't have faith in Christ. Your hope is not in Christ. You're not resting in him. That what I've been preaching, it's not your story. It's not your testimony. There's no hope. You're still dead in your trespasses. What will happen to you? The scripture teaches that at your death, your soul will depart from your body as well. That's death. But it will not go to heaven. The souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies are kept in the graves as in their prisons to the resurrection and judgment of the great day. And on that great day when Christ comes again, indeed the souls of the wicked will be brought from heaven, reunited to their bodies. Their bodies will be transformed too that they might have a body that is prepared to endure the ravages of hell for all eternity. That's what happens for those apart from Christ. That's exactly what Jesus is warning the people of his day. Back in chapter 8, verse 24, he says to them, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. And that's what's on the other side. John 3.36, he says, and the wrath of God remains upon such a one. But he also promises that whosoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. Why? Why Why does God make this sharp distinction? Why blessing, unmeasurable, uncomprehensible blessings for sinners who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, and yet great wrath and judgment forever and ever for those who have not looked to Christ? Why such a distinction? Because God is holy. 
He is infinitely holy. He is holy beyond your comprehension. The scripture grasps for language in the tongues of men to explain the holiness of God. The holiness of God is said to be like an unapproachable light, so brilliant that you turn away. We are told that there will be those on that day when the glory and the resplendent majesty of the holiness of God is manifest forth upon the wicked, that they will cry out for the mountains to be uprooted and to bury them under the heap of the rubble of a great mass to escape from the holiness of God. And this holy God has no fellowship with sin. There's no darkness in him. There'll be no darkness in heaven. There'll be no stain of sin. There'll be no corruption of sin. He is infinitely holy. This is what Isaiah saw. We were back in chapter 6 where he is given a vision and a glimpse into heaven and he sees God seated, seated and arrayed in glory. And he's a righteous man. He is by faith. He's righteous in Christ. And he falls on his face and he cries out, Alas, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a wicked and perverse generation. Such is the holiness of God. You cannot enter heaven and abide in the presence of God apart from Christ. I saw a little meme on social media. I think it was a Spurgeon quote. It was very accurate. The difference, some people say that hell is the absence of God. No. While heaven is the presence of God and his fullness displayed in his glory to his people in Christ Jesus Hell will be in the presence of God, but only his wrath. No mercy, no Christ, just the wrath of a righteous judge against all ungodliness and wickedness. So we need to make sure we're ready for our death. There's no other outcome. There's no other alternative. Indeed, people, as I said, they suppress this knowledge. We, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, we know. We know there's an eternity. We know there's a God, and we know the law of God. It's written on our heart. We know murder and adultery and blasphemy. We know these things are an evil. They're part of being made in the image of God. We know that, but we suppress that knowledge. And the reality of death is something that people suppress. They don't want to think about it. But my friends, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. And once you're ready to die, that you're in Christ, then you really live. For now, you're really alive in Christ forevermore. A time to live then. In the prologue, John announced that Jesus was the light. He was the word. He was the creator God. But he said he was the life. We're going to come to that again in in a future chapter. It is only after we have life in Christ that we are truly ready to live. In fact, it is in him that we have life. This is why so many are running around trying to pretend like they're alive. And, And we live in a day when they're so easy to cover up the conscience with social media. It's just alarming. Perhaps you even feel it yourselves, the tug and the pull of social media. So easy just to flip through the pages and next thing you know you look and an hour has gone by. For what? And have you thought about anything consequential? So many running from the realities. Because when we're prepared to die, then we're prepared to live. And we see how Jesus delayed his departure because Lazarus was ready to die. He delayed his departure from the river Jordan. And then he goes on. Verse 7 tells us that after two days, Jesus then said, it's time to go to Judea. What did the disciples say? 
they're, they're very much aware of the danger. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Why did they go to the river, of the, to the river Jordan? Why, why had they left Judea? They, they were, they'd, last thing there is, they'd taken up stones to stone Jesus. And he departed from them. And the disciples, they're, they, they're mindful of this. And Jesus says, he didn't say, let's go to Bethany. He says, let's go to Judea. Now, Bethany was in Judea. But he's testing them, it would seem, to think about the realities he wants them to think about, yeah, they were so soon in Judea, they were going to stone you. And are you going there again? And then Jesus gives this answer. Thus are heading a time to live. Notice what he says, verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You can't see. You got on a... a, a cloud-covered night or a starless, moonlit night and try to walk around away from streetlights. You know, they're so pervasive. They're everywhere, right? But if you're out in the darkness or you're in a house, the curtains are drawn, the lights are out, the power is off, that's a great darkness. Can you see to do anything? No, that's why we work during the day, right? If we're going to work, we need the light of the sun. The disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying here. What he's saying is that it's the day. See, the Romans and the Jews of that day, they counted the day in 12 hours. There was the sunrise to the sunset, 12 hours, just in round figures. Yeah, it shifted a little bit closer to the equator, the more it's consistent. But then there were 12 hours a night, and they marked you know, the first hour of the day, the ninth hour of the day, and then the first watch of the night, a little more nondescript, say from 6 to 9, uh, the third watch from uh, midnight to 3, the, the fourth watch, the last watch from 3 till 6 in the morning. And Jesus is saying, there, are there not 12 hours in the day? He asks them a question. He wants them to think. What do you do during the day? You work. And Jesus is saying, I have 12 hours. He's using it metaphorically now. He's talking about a day, but he's talking about the day of his ministry. There's 12 hours in it. While the sun is up, he's been appointed a work to do, and he's to complete that work in that time. The Jews want to kill him. Have they been successful? They've sought to do it multiple times because his day includes doing all those things the Father has given for him to do, one of which is to go to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead. There's no reason for him to fear. He is working while it is yet day to do the will of the Father. And when we don't work during the time we're supposed to, then we stumble around in the darkness. Solomon in Ecclesiastes fixes on the day. He talks about one of the themes is life under the sun. And he says, what is good for a man is while the sun is up, you go out, you do your labors, you work, you come home, you're tired, you enjoy the fruit of your labors, and you lay down and you rest a peaceful sleep. You have used the hours of the day wisely, and you're tired and you sleep well. What a blessing to follow the order that God has given to us. Jesus is saying it's still day. He's speaking metaphorically. It's still day. I'm still in my day. Remember, Jesus has his hour that is coming. We've focused on that in John's gospel. It's not yet his hour. This is still the day. This is the day of his labor, the day of his work. And so he's going to go. He's going to do the will of the Father. He's not going to delay. Because he's doing the will of the Father, he need not fear. Make some application. My dear Christian friends, we can and should live our lives in this manner. We should work while it is day. We have a task to accomplish. We have work to do, whether they be physical and, and, and temporal things about life and, and provision for the day or the matters of serving Christ. We, too, are called to do the will of the Father. 
we have a responsibility as the children of the Father that we should be mindful to do that which God has appointed for us to do. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We quote that so often, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Paul doesn't stop there. He also says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us to do in advance. Every day, God has good works he's appointed for us to do. It's day. We need to be about the Father's business during that day. Yes, it includes going to your job and fixing meals and doing laundry and changing diapers, all those things that are part of our ordinary lives. But there's the other work that we're to do. You think about Matthew 25, the end parable. Someone who's thirsty, someone who's hungry, someone who's naked, someone who is sick, to care for them, to minister to their needs. We are called to be God's hands and feet in the world to leave suffering, but especially proclaiming the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. While it is day, while we have our lives, through the time of our birth to the time of our death, we have our day, even as Jesus had his day. We're to use that time wisely to do the will of God. So was doing the will of the Father, as we've heard Jesus did, was that just a Jesus thing? Was that something just Jesus did? No, my friends. It's what we're called to do. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We belong to the living God of heaven, and we too have the will of the Father that we are to accomplish. He purchased us with the blood of Christ, and he saved us. But he didn't just save us to set us on a shelf. He didn't just save us so that we can go to heaven. Those, that's true. But he saved us that we would do the works of the Father, that the Father has prepared for us in advance to do. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to equip us to do the works. I referred to Ephesians 4 earlier in our prayer. God giving gifts to men, elders and deacons, and then giving elders and deacons as gifts to the church. For what purpose? So that these men in our midst would equip us as saints for the work of the ministry. We, the church, doing the work of the ministry. We have a day. We have our time. We're to be doing the will of the Father. We're to be out of the building, out caring for those that are around us in need. We'll be exploring ways that we can do that. I know there's a, an, an interest and a desire amongst many of you to do that. But let us understand, God's not saying quit your jobs and go on a mission trip. We're not all called to vocational, that is, lifelong ministry like a minister. But we're all called to be serving Christ, being obedient while it is yet day. As Jesus said in the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, as you are going, make disciples. We have a brief time to live. Let us live it for the Lord. Finally and briefly, the time of Christ. Verse 13 to 15. However, Jesus spoke of his death, that is Lazarus. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, he is, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So I said a moment ago, Jesus knew what the Father had appointed for him to do. He was going to Bethany to raise a four-day dead man. Right? That's what his sister said. Roll back the stone. No, master, he stinketh. That's what Jesus was going to do. What a glorious thing. He was not in fear of his enemies because it was still the day. 
It was his day to minister, to serve. His hour had not yet come. His hour would be at the Passover because he is the fulfillment of the pastoral lamb, of the, the, the sacrificial lamb down through the generations. He's the one that it's pointed to, and he will be lifted up upon a Roman cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he will shed his blood to save his people from their sins. He will lay down his life and die so that we who are dead may live, that we might have, be partakers in the first resurrection so that we will never taste the second death. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So there is the good shepherd. He would lay down his life for his sheep. He would die a death that we deserve in order to secure us a life that we could never have had. You see, the disciples see this resolve in Jesus. Notice what Thomas says, verse 16. They've heard his resolve. They're aware of the, they're aware of the environment, what awaits them. And Thomas says, let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas expects that they're going to go. And indeed, we're, we're months out. We're really close to the final week. John, in another chapter, 13, we're going to be in the last week already. It's very much at hand. And he's mindful. Thomas is right. Jesus is going to die. But he says, let us go and die with him. Remember Peter, he says, Lord, I'm ready to die for you. He goes, no, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny that you even knew me. But then what happened to the disciples? From scripture, we know of some. From other um, writings of men that have been preserved, we understand that most of the disciples did die for Christ. They did die for him. And indeed many, many other followers of Christ have died for him as well. You see, when you're ready to die, you're not afraid to die. We have brothers and sisters that will die for Christ today. Like Thomas has said, let us go that we may die with him. We're mindful of Afghanistan, but it's not just there. Iran, China, Indonesia, Many parts of the world, there were believers that will die today. But if you were to die tomorrow, are you ready? Indeed, if you are, if you can say yes, then you're ready to live. And that's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. If any man will be as my disciple, let him take up his cross daily. What happens on a cross? Death. We die to self. We deny ourselves. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Die to self. Follow Christ. Use the day that God's given you for his glory. Jesus died to save us so that we can live for the Father's glory. Remember, as you consider these things, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen. Father, we ask that you would bless us to be faithful in your house. Having been given life from above, Lord, may we live that life for your glory and not for ourselves. May we live as unto the Lord ready to die for Christ, not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of our Redeemer. Father, we pray that we would use each an hour wisely in our days. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be seen through us, that he would be magnified and always say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing number 690, I Know 